now as we come to your word, Lord, I pray that we will tremble at your word. You have spoken, and when you spoke, the world was created, and now you come and you speak to our hearts, God, and you change us. So God, take your word, God, and speak through your spirit to each heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see you today, the ones who braved the adventure out there. That was a big time, wasn't it? Coming around that corner on 215, there was some excitement going on around there. But anyway, listen, we're continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians today. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to encourage you to turn there. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you if you don't, don't have a Bible with you. But we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. And um, this is dealing... How, how many of you enjoyed reading this one this past week? That, <laughs> there's just something to talk about, huh? But... Um, made for some lively discussion around the dinner table, I'm sure. But um, what we're going to do today uh, is break this into four sections. First off, we're going to look at what Paul had to say to the married among you in verses 1 through 5 and then 10 and 11. Secondly, we're going to look at what he had to say to the unmarried among you in verses 6 through 9. Thirdly, verses 10 through 16, to the married to unbelievers among you. And then verses 17 through 24, he's going to talk with us about contentment in our calling. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 5 and then 10 and 11. So verse 1 it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so obviously the Corinthians had received some communication from Paul and he had addressed several things. And in fact, the remainder of this book, really starting in chapter 7 now, clear till the end, he's going to be addressing things that were in this letter. We don't know for sure what that letter was, but Paul had these concerns brought to him. And so he's going to speak to them about a lot of things that are really very practical to the church that actually will help us. God's word is eternal. It speaks to us in our current situation. And so he's going to talk to us in chapter 8 about food offered to idols. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. And then in chapter 12, he's going to talk to us about spiritual gifts. He had some questions about spiritual gifts, what that looked like, how they should function in the church. And then about the collection for the saints, about how to give and how to do that in appropriate ways. But this morning, he's going to talk to us about marriage and people who are single, and, and these things that are very practical and pertinent to us. So let's look at the first four verses of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I'll read the verse 4 here real quick. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband... For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There in verse 1, it says, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul is quoting something that they have sent to him. He is not endorsing this. He is saying, now, in relation to what you sent me about, is it, is it wrong, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? He's going to address that, and the short way he's going to address it is to say, that's a bunch of nonsense. Okay. What has happened is that Paul is addressing a near monastic asceticism that had been introduced into the church in Corinth because of the Greek culture. The philosophy of the Greeks concerning sex, and philosophy is usually better in theory than in practice, was that it's not good. In fact, one of their philosophers had said, if a man consider marriage in a proper point of view, it is an evil. But then it is a necessary evil. That's the attitude that had been 
thrown into the church here in Corinth, and Paul is addressing not, not because he endorses it or is in favor of it, but because he is going to refute it soundly over the next few verses. This is a nonsensical argument that they are trying to raise, and it's, been, it's, <laughs> it's come down through the ages. You ever heard of the Shaker movement? You ever heard of Shaker furniture? The Shakers were a group of people that they're going to serve Jesus by everybody getting married, and now the men live in this dorm and the women live in that dorm. East is east and west is west, and they'll never meet again, you know. Well, when they got down to about the last three Shakers, they looked at each other and said, yeah, this isn't working. They said, we're not going to take any more converts. <laughs> and we all said, bless God, right? <laughs> so they shut down the Shaker because this is, Nonsense. It does not work in practice. And many really have taken this view throughout church history that sex in itself is evil. It's a necessary evil. We have to procreate after all, but, um, but it's not a good thing. And, and I think Augustine was one of these people that said that in the fourth century. That, that, uh, and I think he was probably a sex addict. So he had experienced so much pain through the abuse and misuse of sex that he saw it as an evil thing. Something that we needed, but something that really wasn't good, and it's, a, it's been a painful thing for so many, and many have been harmed by this good gift of God through the misuse of it or others that have perpetrated things against them. And this is where I think we need to start early on in our sermon this morning with the gospel, because the gospel tells us that whatever we've done or wherever we've been, and it, we saw it in the previous chapter, that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified, declared not guilty. And, and uh, as Pastor Robert said last week, that sexual sin itself has this sort of personal effect on us. It makes us feel dirty, right? And whether it's something we've done or something that's been done to us. But the Bible says and the gospel says that when you receive Jesus, you are washed. You are cleansed. You're made holy. You're made righteous. And so now get up and walk in your justification and your sanctification. Now you can live God's principles. And God's principles about sex are good. And they make it good and healthy and fulfilling. And so let's walk in his way and who we are in Jesus. And listen, here's the reality. He's going to deal with the married and the unmarried, neither of which is more spiritual than the other. Neither of which is more spiritual than the other. Both of them require a gift from God. And if we don't have the gift for the one, thank God for the gift for the other. Amen? And we have, the church has taken both of these and said, no, this is the only way to serve. And to, to, to take anything to an extreme is never a wise or safe thing. Those who are called to live a single lifestyle, that is a gift that God has given to them. And those who are called to live a married lifestyle, that is a gift that God has given to them, neither of which is more important or better or more spiritual than the other. But Paul, in this section, in this passage, is going to give us eternal biblical guidelines of how to live inside of these two, first to, the, to those who are married and then secondly to those who are unmarried. And he begins there in verse 2 when it says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And that eliminates polygamy. Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Each man his own wife each woman her own husband, so that each can know, I am fully given to this one, that one is fully given to me. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4, he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I, I want us to... Let those verses soak in here a bit for us because these are really counter-cultural. And to receive them uh, 
from God, the one whose idea it was to have sex, and he knows how to make it a beautiful and good and blessed thing and to listen to him, because uh, these are not the words of our culture, right? And let's begin by saying, notice, look at, look at where, this is to occur between a wife and her husband, period, right? That's the Bible's design for sex. It's between two married people in a lifetime commitment, and that's all it's for, right? So it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing, but it's between a husband and a wife who have made lifetime commitments to each other. Now, Paul is often blasted for being hard on women, right, as you read through his epistles. But this passage does not bear that out. Notice that he says really several things. First of all, that the, having a single spouse is owed and deserved to eat both men and women, husbands and wives. That to have your sexual needs met is important for both men and women. And later on, we're going to see that the right to divorce in that unhappy and difficult time is a right given to both men and women. So he is affirming the rights of women. He is affirming the rights of men. Both are of equal standing in the face of God. And we need to hear that. These are timeless principles that are applied inside the gift of marriage. Now, our culture looks at sex as any two people who are willing, you know, any two people who are willing to be involved in this, knock yourselves out anywhere, anyway, anytime, it doesn't matter. That is not the culture of the kingdom culture of the kingdom is that the sexual relationship is protected and restricted to those who are in a committed marriage relationship and look there are all kinds of caveats to this the, the the woman does not have authority over her own body but the husband does the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does you take that home today and use it as a club let me let me let me give you the word of the lord <laughs> it will not go well for you okay how about how about we don't do that the Bible, it says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Bible is a two-edged sword that's able to pierce even to the dividing of thought and intent of the heart. Not only what you think, not what you do, but why you do it. And friends, the Word of God is able to bring change in people's lives where our beating them over the head with it is not able to do that. Don't go home and try and beat somebody up into getting what you want out of this, because that's not what this is for. We allow the Holy Spirit to rain this word on our hearts, yeah. sink deep into the hard-packed soil of our cultural yeah. understanding, and bring change that's going to glorify the kingdom. You know, when we come to Jesus, because he served us on the cross, right, we now are to go and serve one another like he served us. And so everything we do in life, whether it's with friends or with family or at work, uh, at play, and in our sexual relationships, we're to be servants of one another. That's what we're to do, right? And so when the Bible says, right, in this text, if one person is in the mood, right, the other one serves that person. That's the mindset here, right? The culture says when two people are in the mood, regardless of what that looks like, you do it. But the Bible says... Sexual ethic for the Bible is when one person in the context of marriage is in the mood, you have sex together, right? And this will lead to, if we obey, no sex outside of marriage and a whole lot more sex in marriage. And that, I think, is God's design and a really good thing. One of the benefits of marriage, look there in verse, tw verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, one of the purposes of it is to protect us from that. 
And if we're going to refrain, if we're going to hold back, then, then we're defrauding that one that we have married to and said, I'm here to meet your needs. I'll do what we can. Now, it's not the only reason. Malachi 2.15 says that it's to raise up a godly offspring. There's one guy, there, well, there are a bunch of people that say that means you're supposed to have a bunch of kids. One guy, very prominent, says you're, that verse, Malachi 2.15, means you're supposed to have at least 12 kids. <laughs> said the guy who's not married and we assume has no kids. We wanted five, and then we had one, right? But the purpose of Malachi 2.15 is not how many kids, but the quality. It's not quantity, it's quality, that you can raise up a godly offspring. And Paul tells us another reason for it is so that we can take care of each other, protect each other from the sexual immorality that is on billboards all the way up and down I-15. It's to protect one another by service. So it commends us as Christian couples, married couples, to put a great effort into our sexual relationship, right? And, and to love each other well, to do the practical things throughout the day, right, that show love and intimacy and care and concern so that our sexual relationships can come alive. They don't just happen. They have to be invested in throughout the day in the way we love and treat and talk to, uh, encourage one another. But we should really do it, I think, uh, these days, especially because of the easy sexual temptation that's offered to us in the internet. It's so easy. When you come to that fork in the road as a married couple, and you can take the easy path of the quick look at the internet, or you can do the hard work of marriage, right? And experience something far more fulfilling and far, far more blessed and honored by God instead of that cursed thing called, the, called immorality in the internet. And so let's invest to protect one another uh, in our sexual intimacy so that we have healthy marriages. He tells us, he states categorically, look there in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. To, to abstain from sex, even in the marriage relationship, is a proper form of fasting but for a time and for a purpose, to, and then to come back together so that Satan will not tempt us because of our lack of self-control. You know, last night my wife and I were, were praying together, <coughs> late at night actually, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and, um, you know, it almost brings me to tears listening to my wife pray. And, uh, and we were praying, and then uh, our family in our church was in a bit of a crisis, and we got a text. Robert and I got a text about 10, 30, 11 o'clock last night. And then we stopped, we read it, and we prayed again, you know. And, and there's something about praying together that is so intimate. In fact, I kind of think it's the most intimate thing we do. We come before Jesus together to ask him, right? And, and so this thing of sort of setting aside sexual intimacy for just a little season in order to pray is actually a building of intimacy between couples to emphasize something even more intimate. And to do that. And so I just encourage you, if it, and it's a scary thing, I think it's a harder thing to do than having sex is to pray together. Step into those waters and experience the blessing of God, of that intimacy of praying together as a couple. So in marriage, we serve one another by ministering to the needs of the other one. And you say, well, I don't think they're going to go off into adultery. They might not go into adultery. How would you like for them to go into isolation? How does that one work for you? There's a Christian author that if I called their name, you'd go, oh, yeah, man, a lot of read, a lot of, read a lot of books by that person. And after they died, somebody asked their spouse, what was it, what's it like being married to someone other than this person? And they said, well, my first spouse loved God. My second spouse loves me. Boy, we don't want that said. How, how can we meld these two 
and a relationship where we're serving one another, meeting the needs of another one. And so he says there in verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Yeah. So these verses tell us that there is a time for legitimate divorce. All right. God's aim, God's goal for us is to enter into marriage and to stay at it through our lifetimes. Um, but God says because of the hardness of our hearts that sometimes it's necessary and God allows that provision. And he gives some very specific things and examples of when that would be permissible. For example, he uses the exception of adultery in Matthew 19.9 where he says, because you have committed adultery, I permit it for you to be divorced. It's a sad thing. God hates divorce. But sometimes, because of situations in our homes, in our families, in our own hearts, it is necessary. And friends, you know, look, we know the tragedy. We know the pain. We know the hurt that, causes, that divorce causes. I have four siblings. Between those four siblings, I have 12 current and former in-laws. My parents divorced. Donna's only married sister divorced. We have seen this up close. And we've, we've thought about it. You know, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, said uh, we never th- talked about divorce. We talked about murder a bunch, but never divorced. We were, <laughs> we were married three weeks in. We looked at each other. What have we done? I hate you. You hate me. Let's get out of this thing. And we, it, it would have been easy. It would have been the easy way. Where would we be? In fact, one of my kids looked at their spouse before they got married and said, if my parents can make it, anybody can make it. And so you go, well, I'm glad to be an example of something. You know, I'm I'm here to help. But but the reality is, friends, God has called us into this thing so that we can be a servant to one another Mm -hmm. as they are used as iron against my iron to sharpen both of us to make us look more like Christ. And friends, we have seen, Pastor Robert and I have seen, being in ministry all the years that we have, couples that have gone through this horrible thing called adultery and they have repented sought God's forgiveness sought healing sought to find the roots of why it happened restored their marriage got through it and got to the other side and found their lives and marriages better having gone through it now someone in the first service said it sounds like you're recommending adultery is a good way to get into a better marriage no <laughs> But if that has been your experience by the grace of God and through the power of the gospel, there can be redemption and healing and intimacy found that you never thought was possible. And so don't give up, right? Just because there was something that is an excuse for, mer- dis- uh, for divorce, don't necessarily use it. Use it as an opportunity to dig in and see where Jesus can minister to your hearts and bring healing to your marriage. And one reality is that we do not want to be flippant or glib about is this, we're going to have to forgive that person at some point. Why not go ahead and forgive them now and see if God can put this thing back together? So when we're talking about, Kevin has the three A's, the triple A's. This is one association you do not want to be a member of. The first of the A's is adultery in a serial fashion. Look there in um, verse uh, 15, and here's the second one of them. But if the unbelieving partner separates let it be slow. So they will not, you're not enslaved, according to verse 39, in those situations. And that is abandonment. We had a woman in Cedar who, I met her at six and a half years after her husband had disappeared. And I was talking to her one day, so where is your husband? I don't know, and I, if I knew, I'd kill him just so I'd know where he was at. 
Because for six and a half years, they had suffered, suffered, suffered with poverty. Because not until they'd been gone seven years that they're declared dead. And she had been bound to that. What a tragedy. Here she had been abandoned all all that time and was suffering as a result of it. And what Paul says, if they separate, let it be so. You're not enslaved in such a situation. That's the second of them is abandonment. And the third one is abuse. It really is not consenting to live with the other. It's really abandoning your spouse. That if you harm them physically or emotionally over and over and over, in in a serial fashion, it's in an abusive fashion, uh, it it misses the spirit of marriage where you, you consent to live with the other, to leave and to cleave to that spouse. And so serial adultery or serial abandonment or serial abuse are, uh, we think, God's guidelines and when divorce could be uh, permissible. But once again, God hates divorce, so we want to do everything we can to find His grace and His help and restoration even through these things before we quickly go to that alternative. And seek the, the, the wisdom of a biblical counsel, the wisdom of pastors if you're in the middle of that. Let us help you. Let us think with you about it. And then let us be, friends, as the body of Christ, Gracious to those that have gone through this, right? I, I haven't gone through this. I'm thankful. But they say it's as painful as possible, imaginable. And so let's be gracious. Let's be a gracious church that uh, is kind and restorative to people who have gone through hard things and yet continue to encourage all couples to stay in there. Let's keep the fight. Let's, let's go at this. Let's see if we can get healing to this problem that we have between us. So first off, he speaks to the married among you. Secondly, in verses 6 through 9, he speaks to the unmarried among you. Let's look at what that says, verses 6 through 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. I am so thankful for verse 6. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, because I'm one of those that I couldn't have done it. I didn't have that gift. And that does not mean that how I'm gifted is better or more important than or more spiritual than anybody else. To operate in either of these callings requires a gift and an empowerment by the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have the gift for being single. And so for that reason, God gave me permission, gave me the opportunity to be married, which has been a blessing beyond description. Yeah. So if you are single this morning, and I think it's now 50% of American adults are single, uh, it doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or they're like, it's like you're the odd person out. That means God has got a unique, special calling on your life, which really is a good calling. And Paul said to that single person, you have greater opportunity to serve Christ. So avail yourself of that. I I remember in my early college years as a freshman and sophomore in college, and God was beginning to get a hold of my heart in some really cool ways, and I was starting to sense a real need to maybe just get into ministry, right? I was in engineering school and taking these hard classes that I didn't really like, and it was kind of boring and too much work. And and, and so I started to sense, well, maybe God's calling me to leave all of this, right, and go be an evangelist around the world, see? And so, and I really did, it was a serious thing, and I told my dad, I said, my gosh, why would I go and show up for these classes about mathematics and chemistry when I can go preach Jesus around the world? And I was single, right? I could just do it, and I was so excited about it. And my dad said, now, son, right, calm down, right? 
I mean, my dad loved Jesus. Don't get me wrong. He just was wiser than me by a ton, right? So, so he said, look, it, just finish it out. You know, someday you're going to be glad you got that degree and got a job that you could pay for living expenses of a family. And, and sure enough, my dad was right, as he just virtually always was, you know, and, so I, and I did it. And, um, and the day came when I got married and I got a good job and I could support a family and my wife who wanted to stay home with the kids could, could do that. But I found out that as I got married that I, uh, it took a lot of work, a lot of investment in time and energy. And all this desire to constantly be at church and serving Jesus, you know, the more holy calling, I, I, my wife had needs that I had to attend to. And at first I thought that was kind of unspiritual. And then I read verses like this, but the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And that was a good thing. And turned out to be the greatest blessing in my life, the greatest gift that God ever gave me. And in fact, I learned to grow, become more like Jesus through that more than anything else I possibly could have done. And so listening to God's heart that, you know, it's good to be single. That'd be a great thing, but it's also good to be married if that's what God's calling you to do. But the church has easily gone to both extremes, which we humans are wont to do, to say that my way is the only right way, and it's not. Marriage is not the best way. Singleness is not the best way. They are what they are, and they are the giftings that God has given. We have a brother here in town. He's in his mid-70s. Wanted to get married, had the opportunity to get married. Felt like God was saying, no, I want you to serve me in a single capacity. He's never married. He served the Lord. He's been able to go to places I will never be able to go to. My mother's best friend in, uh, in Alabama went to seminary together. She, she ran a ministry to mentally handicapped individuals in the state of Alabama. She was unbelievable, did an amazing job, and she never married. And my sisters, when they were thinking about getting married, which was about 12 years old, but anyway, they, uh, they went to her and said, why did you never marry? And Liz said, I never, I never met a man who could run things better than I could. And I, th I remember thinking, you have done the world a favor. Because not only was she an amazing individual who did an amazing work, an amazing ministry, but she also didn't saddle some poor schmuck <laughs> with her strength, and she wasn't harnessed by some poor schmuck who's going to hold her strengths back. She recognized, no, I can do this thing. And it was a gift that, man, when she was released to do it, she changed people's lives because of the strength of the gift that God had given her. So if you're single, right, enjoy it. Make the most of it. It's a great and amazing and beautiful calling. Serve Jesus with everything you got. Don't be held back by that person, right? Just go for it. And when you think about it, think about who we are as Christians and where we're going with this whole thing, right? We are the bride of Christ, right? And we get to heaven, they tell us, and the Bible tells us, right, the Bible tells us that there will not be marriage or giving in marriage in heaven because we will be Jesus' bride. And you, as a single person here, now can enjoy that and live that way. That the best, ultimate, eternal destiny is what you are experiencing now and tasting even right now. So relish it, enjoy it, take advantage of it, live in it, flourish in it. It is God's blessing and call in your life. So singleness is as much a calling as marriage is. And... To the extent and in the ways that the church has been an offense to those who are single by implying or stating that marriage is a holier state, we need to take responsibility yeah. for that and we need to apologize for it. Oh, yeah. It's a lot easier to have a marriage conference than it is a single conference.
but no greater value. And so to the degree that the church has been responsible for degrading and making it sound like it's not as spiritual, we need to apologize for that. Because, friends, it is a calling. It is a gift as much as the gift of marriage, and every gift is to be received with thanksgiving. So first off, we have him talking to the married among you, secondly, to the unmarried among you, and thirdly, to the married to unbelievers among you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, it says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? And so Paul is responding to Jews who taught that the children of the world were unholy. And the fear was is that if you had unbelieving spouse in your home, that spouse would make your children unholy. And Paul is refuting that and saying quite the opposite. If you are the one believing person in this family, if you are the believing spouse and your spouse is not a believer, you actually are making them holy. You are sanctifying them. You are drawing them to Jesus. And it lays the foundation of the super important marital principle. And that is our primarily, primary aim in marriage is to sanctify one another, to help each other become more like Jesus. It's not to have the perfect home and the perfect marriage and all things idyllic. It's about taking broken people who are sinners and helping them grow in Jesus or helping them grow to Jesus and helping the children grow in faith. It's a sanctifying call that we are brought to in marriage. Now look at what he says there in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now look at what he said up in verse 10. Not I, but the Lord. Up in verse 10, it's the Lord talking, not Paul. In verse 12, it's Paul talking, not the Lord. So what does that mean? That Paul's giving his opinion here, and maybe I can just give my opinion. My opinion's as good as Paul's opinion. I'll tell you what. Tell you what. You write a book, and 2,000 years from now, when people are still reading your book, and still lives are still being changed by your book, then we might think you were possibly inspired, okay? Until then, you're not, Okay? Here's what he's talking about in verse 10. He's saying when he said, the Lord, not I, what he's saying is this is addressed elsewhere in Scripture. In verse, so I'm just quoting, quoting God. In verse 12, when he says, I, not the Lord, he's saying this is not addressed in Scripture because we haven't had believers and unbelievers before. We haven't had Christians married to lost folks because we hadn't had Christians before. And so now Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which you and I are not, is able to say, now look, I'm going to say, it does not diminish the level of inspiration. It qualifies it. This is a revelation based on our circumstance here that is applicable for all time because we in this church have many who are married to unbelievers. And so what does he say to us? He is able to address it in this passage. <clears throat> and he tells us to have this inclination. When marriage is hard, when it is difficult, and when it's in difficult in particular because you have an unbelieving spouse, have the inclination to stay in it because God is doing something good. 
that God is sanctifying you and growing you, and you don't know. Your spouse might come to know Jesus, right? And your children, because you are there in that home with them, reflecting Christ, are likely to come to know Jesus. And it's a reminder that marriage can be really hard, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. It can be a really a deep suffering because we're trying to sanctify each other, spurring one another on, right? The picture of Ephesians 5, of the sanctification of, of our spouses and this, this ironing out wrinkles, you know, that's, that's a painful picture, you know. That's what we're to do. And, and, and I, it recalled for me, uh, as I read this this week, a father who, um, in a season of his life when I was a teenager, had a wife, my mom, who was a prescription drug addict, and she was addicted to Valium. That's what they did with people that were depressed in those days. It was a sad thing. I was telling my staff this this week, and, and I watched my dad love that woman and stay with her, though she, for a season, offered him very little, and he loved her through and out of it to later on in life. She had broken that addiction, was living healthy and happily and joyfully because my dad stayed in it. And that has been an example to me to love my wife well and an example to my kids to love their wives well. And so it's a great thing to stay in the hard moments of marriage. It's easy, especially in our culture, to say, well, Jesus wants me happy and I'm not happy in this marriage, so I can just leave. That is not, that's not biblical. That's not the culture of the kingdom. The culture of the kingdom is that God is doing a sanctifying work. We bring leaven to that marriage where that one is not saved. And that marriage is going to bring leaven. It's going to sanctify us also. And we want to run from it because my life will be easier. Tozer said, if I have to choose between happiness and holiness, give me holiness. I have all eternity to be happy. And so can we allow God to use even the difficulty of the marriage that we many times like to be out of as a way to further sanctify us, to further transform us, to give real life, genuine practical change in a real life setting. How's that for allowing your marriage to shape us into the image of Christ, to bring real life transformation of who we are into who he is for the purpose of bringing redemption and sanctification to that marriage. And when it is difficult in our marriages, let's work on getting the perspective of Jesus, right? Who died when we were sinners for us, right? Laid down his life for us. And Colossians 1.24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, the difficulties of life, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That Paul deeply suffered as he was seeking to bring salvation and sanctification to God's people in the same way that Jesus suffered for us to save us we are to suffer for one another to get them to grow in Christ so taking Jesus perspective when our spouse is offensive to us if you think it is offensive to us imagine how offensive those sins are to Jesus and so let's join with Jesus in suffering to help them get out of it <laughs> right rather than being all offended and mad let's join with Jesus to help them grow up and that is God's perspective in the Scriptures. And the reason he does that, look there in verse 16. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Friends, the book's not closed yet. The story's not over. We have no clue how this thing's going to end. So let's continue to live a Christian lifestyle in front of them so that, as it said somewhere else, maybe without even a word will lead to their conver conversion. One of the finest men I've ever known, John Cowan, down in southern Utah, he dropped out of school when he was in third grade. I had to go to work supply the family and dust bowl hit and they moved moved to california 
he got married real young. And they were just pagans. They didn't know the Lord. They were pagans and acting like it. By the time he was 23 years old, I think he had two kids at that time. He's off committing adultery, and his wife, she's done. She's going to divorce him. And then he got saved. And John couldn't read, but he drove a track hoe down there in Southern California, and he'd learn how to read by, by piecing through a verse of the Bible. And by the time he got through with the verse, he had it memorized. You'd give him a jump start, and man, he's gone with reams of Scripture that he'd memorized. And his wife made fun of him. Now you're a Jesus freak, carried on, and now she's really done with him. Until about six weeks in, she looked at him and said, I don't know what you got, but I want it. She got saved. And those people served the Lord for the next 60 years together. They were amazing. What God did, we have no clue. You have no clue. If God might use you, you might be the very instrument through whom that person becomes a Christian. So we've seen Paul's instructions uh, to the married, Paul's instructions <coughs> to the unmarried, and then, as we just looked at, uh, his instructions to married to unbelievers. And finally, we'll see in the last seven verses here, contentment, to see contentment in your calling. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. And each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when he call, was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition you were called, there let him remain with God. And so God has given us this basic instruction to be content in whatever calling we have, whether we're single or whether we're married, whether we're in this part of the world or that part of the world. Be content because contentment is not based on your external environment. It's not based on whether you're single or married. It's based on whether you know Jesus. I think of Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul says that he counts it all rubbish, all that he had in the world, all the esteem of his peers, for all his right behaviors, he counts as rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. And you can know Christ in whatever place you are, and you can know Christ in whatever circumstance you are, even as a slave. You can walk and know Jesus, so be content in it, because Jesus is where life is found. What he's saying is that God has saved you in the place that you are so that you can be a witness in that place. How many times have we thought, oh, well, if I were really serious, I'd be serving Jesus in Africa and eating bugs. No, man. If you get saved and you're a welder, then weld for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Serve God where you are. Now, if you're a mob boss hit man, okay, come on, let's rethink that. <clears throat> but you know what Evie Hill did down in, in, in uh, East L.A.? Um, you got saved there and you, you, were, you had been working as a prostitute. You are now in the ministry to reach out to prostitutes. You're going to quit that line of work and you're going to go back into the field that God has called you out of so that you can be an effective way. You know how this thing works. Whatever field you came out of, and we, you know... And I know that 
I know that many in ministry, many of the pastors have done this. We've made it sound like if you're really serious about serving Jesus, then you're going to go do the right school, and you're going to go do the right job, and you're going to be in full-time ministry. Friend, you are in full-time ministry right yep. now. Amen. Yep. If you've accepted Jesus, you are a full-time minister. Yep. You just happen to be paid by whatever it is, whatever job you have. You are on full-time duty. And what the, the, the profession you were in when you became a Christian, he's saying use that as a platform. To share the gospel, we had, okay, there were strip clubs in Jackson, Mississippi. Imagine that. And we had some women in the church there that had been strippers in their past. And when they became a Christian, they said, we, need, we know that culture. We know what those people are going through. We're going to take the gospel to the strippers in this town. No men were allowed in that ministry. Imagine that. But they took the gospel back into the field that they had been saved out of because they were preeminently qualified to speak into the needs of the people still trapped in that lifestyle. Mary's been uh, reading a book in her corporate job, and I've been kind of sneaking peeks at it because I have this sort of corporate bent myself, called The Fred Factor. And, and Fred was a postman, and he had a very mundane, ordinary job, but he figured out a way how to make it really meaningful and how to touch lives. This is a secular book, right? And he talked about how he loved people and he cared for people and he made his job very meaningful by doing his very best for those around him. And, and these secular authors grab this principle as if they've stumbled on something absolutely genius. And all it is is the teachings of the Bible, right? All truth is God's truth. He teaches us to make our lives meaningful by loving people and those around us and doing it well to his glory. You can be a rancher in Nebraska chasing around cows all day and do it to the glory of God because you do it well and you make those cows fat and I get a steak and I celebrate Jesus, right? And so whatever you're doing, you can do it to his glory. That is what God is calling us to do. Bloom where you're planted. Be content where you are. Serve him. Honor Jesus by the way you live your life. And this is not an endorsement to slavery, which he brings up in this passage, verse 21. He, because even there he says, listen, if you can get your freedom, do it. Improve your situation any way that you can. But know this, if you cannot gain your freedom, a slave is still free in Christ. And the free man, he is a slave of Christ. Don't, don't, don't think that you're less than somebody else. Do everything you can to improve your situation. But... At the end of the day, serve God in the place that you are because you are the salt in that part of the world that needs to hear the gospel. They need the light of Christ. And in a sermon like this, it touches a lot of nerves, I know that. A lot of us, probably all of us, have broken places in our lives, in our sexuality, and we feel dirty or guilty or something that God really sent Jesus to deliver us from. And so let's receive the gospel, right, into those broken places and those wounded places. Let's receive his forgiveness. Let's accept his washing, his cleansing. Let's accept his no condemnation written over our head, regardless of what we've done, and walk in the truth of the gospel as God's people in the days ahead. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, we would love to talk with you. We would invite you to talk with us afterwards. Let us share with you what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can experience forgiveness. You can have a changed life in our commitment to Jesus. Well, listen, most of us in this room are Christians, and as it speaks to marriage, how are you doing in your marriage? And how many of us just need to look at each other, punch each other in the ribs, and say, okay, we have some things we're going to talk about? 
And you listen, you take these verses home and you use them as a club, the word of the Lord is it will not go well with you. But if you'll be willing to come to this and say, listen, I have some things I need to deal with. I need to, I need to apologize to you about some things. If we can allow the Holy Spirit to begin a conversation in us, it will make our marriages, not just our employment, not just how we spend our time, not just that we go to church on Sunday, but our marriages, an example of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So let's do this this morning. If you would like us to pray for you, especially here in this next moment, you're going through some battles in your home, or there are just things you're trying to work out in your life, or there's somebody that you know and you would like to have them prayed for. If you would like us just to pray for you and, and your struggles with family and marriage, I just invite you to stand right now and we'll just pray for you uh, as we send you out today. Father, thank you so lives much. Prayer. Father, thank you so much. God, thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But by loosing from the law of sin and death and attaching to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, there, there is freedom in you. Now, Father, we come to you with some of these situations, some of these marriage things. We say we just need to work on some stuff. God, it's not, it's not the end of the world, and we want to say thank you for letting us know about it. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's a gift. It's your good gift to us to get us back into right relationship with you and with one another. And so, Father, we just receive this this morning. Father, help us to be gracious and kind with one another. Father, we speak peace over these marriages. Yep. We speak depth over these marriages, intimacy in levels that have never been experienced before, and God, effectiveness for the kingdom, effectiveness for the kingdom by the example that these marriages can, will, and are giving to those around them. God, please be glorified in every area of our life. In Jesus' name. Let's pray for these people throughout the week. See those who stood. Let's stand together and sing this last song. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst?